0: Hi, I'm Bill Kristol, welcome to Conversations. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Harvard economics professor Martin Feldstein, uh, served as President Reagan's chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. I wouldn't even begin to, to detail all your honors and awards and a major economist in, in America and someone I've learned an awful lot from over the years. So thank you for-
1: Delighted to joining. be with you. Now you're gonna explain right.
0: everything here and- As
1: much as I can.
0: <laughs> well, that's great, that's great. Uh, where should, um, be? why don't we begin with uh 2007-2008 crisis, which I think called into question for a lot of people what we thought we knew. And, oh, gee, the econ- Very talented economists were there, at the Fed and in the White House and friends and students <laughs> of yours. And suddenly we, and people allegedly worked out all these questions of risk and in the international financial system. And suddenly we were very close to, a. I guess we really were pretty close, weren't we, to a real financial crisis crash and a Great Depression. So how did that happen? What are the lessons? Were we we that close? Yeah, I don't know
1: whether we really were that close, but there's no doubt that it was a very serious downturn. And so how did we get there? Well, basically, assets in general were overpriced. Stocks were overpriced. Bonds were overpriced. But the thing that was probably most overpriced was uh, individual homes, owner-occupied homes. Uh, That was in part because the Fed had kept interest rates exceptionally low, so it was easy to get mortgages. It was in part because of government programs designed to get low-income people to borrow uh, in order to own a home. And so what happened was house prices got bid up way, way beyond the cost of construction. So you knew something was wrong. But the public policy was aimed at uh, promoting housing and uh, allowing people to get uh, mortgages equal to say 90%, 95% of the value of their homes. And then the bubble burst and house prices started coming down. And when they did, what went from what was a 95% loan to value ratio became 110% loan to value ratio. So these people owed more than their houses were worth. And at a certain point, they said, well, why am I paying on this mortgage when I owe more than the house is worth? And you could actually find a a website called youwalkaway.com, which explained to people that they had the right to not pay and to walk away. And all that the banks could do was take the home. So you owed a $120,000 and your house was worth ninety. You walked away from that $120,000 in debt. So that triggered a lot of speculation <coughs> in financial markets saying, well, if that was overpriced and the mortgages based on that and the bonds based on those mortgages were overpriced, then maybe a lot of stuff is overpriced. And so we had a meltdown, not just in home prices, but across the board.
0: So yeah, so I mean, listening to this as a layman, I, would, most of, I think most laymen think of it as a financial crisis or a Wall Street crisis. But I think what you're saying is that it was a housing crisis that became a financial crisis? Yes,
1: very much so.
0: And is that widely accepted or is this? Yeah, I
1: think so. And, was it know, at the
0: time, do you think people uh, saw that?
1: Yeah, I think they did. Uh, the banks, froze because they had all these mortgages. They didn't know what they were worth. They didn't know how far house prices would fall. So they didn't know how much capital they had. The the banks didn't know how much potential lending they could do, and they certainly didn't know what other banks' financial position was because it wasn't what they reported, it was what these mortgages would eventually be worth. So banks stopped lending to each other. And that's really what <laughs> brought the the crisis on.
0: So it was policy mistake, I mean, one has presumably business cycles and recessions, but you think it was policy mistakes that really triggered?
1: I think it was the policy mistake of allowing uh, super high loan to value ratios. And it was the policy mistake before 07, 08, of keeping interest rates super low so that uh, mortgage borrowing was encouraged by people who wouldn't be able to afford it with normal interest rates.
0: And these were bipartisan policy mistakes. Since yeah, possibly. right. But liberal in the sense, I mean, I don't mean this in a polemical way, but uh, <clears throat> trying to be generous, let's say, but to it, people, to make more people be able to afford houses, yes, and to make and, it cheaper to course, buy a house. I mean, yes,
1: and it, but it wasn't ideological. It was that the the realtors, the home builders, uh, all those folks were leaning on their right. congressmen to uh, keep these policies in place. And you know, the sad thing is we've done it again. We, after the the, the recession ended, started back up, uh, we said, well, we're not gonna make that mistake again. We're not gonna let people borrow 90% of the value of a home. But you can now. And uh, low-income people can once again get uh, Thanks to Fannie and Freddie and the Federal Home Loan Program, they can get 90-plus percent. And so if house prices come down again, we'll see people underwater. We'll see people owing more than I they have. Well, we, so I want to come back.
0: That's worrisome. I want to come back to that. And, but So, yeah, this is a good case. It's a political science sort of matter, but <clears throat> you're familiar. You study political economy, not just right? economics. I mean, so, yeah, you have the... Obviously, citizens are happy to be able to buy houses more cheaply by sure. of low interest Especially rates. Especially if they subsidies. can
1: walk away if things go wrong. It's a one-sided Right, so, so that's
0: also a bet. policy matter, right, that yeah. those loans mm-hmm. are different from other loans. Right, exactly. What do they exactly. call No recourse?
1: No recourse
0: loans. So you can't be,
1: they, they your can't. other
0: assets can't be taken. Right.
1: Not that these people have a lot of other assets, but the U.S. is unusual in having this uh, free pass, uh, this no recourse loan
0: which isn't true for another loan you take out if you're, they can. They can come after you for right. so other mortgages things, are just right. Cheated. So that's a public policy question. Right, so we have even
1: bu- in those states, it, it, it differs by state, even in those states where uh, the bank can come after you, there's very uh, tight limits on what they can do. So they can take so much a week from your paycheck or they can, so it's, again, it's very generous to the borrower.
0: So you have a bunch of public policies that are right, generous to borrowers, because most people are borrowers. And the interest groups have their own interest in selling.
1: Right.
0: So you have a, all that comes together to create this. Now what would now normally one would say in a kind of uh, pluralistic you know, interest group, Madisonian system, there should be others who check, who lean the other way, right? The, you know, so to speak, the way you, you know.
1: Yeah, isn't it's that not the, clear that but who would is, be leaning yeah, against that? Well, the
0: Fed, I guess, in the old days, no? I mean, shouldn't they be so worried about the overall?
1: Yes, they should, but uh, Janet Yellen said, oh, a few years ago, two or three years ago, she said in a major speech at the IMF, she said, financial stability is not our responsibility. Pretty amazing. She said uh, that's somebody else's responsibility. Our mandate is to have low unemployment and price stability. And so that's what we're trying to do. Now, recently she's been saying we have to start raising interest rates more rapidly because one of the things to worry about is inflation and another thing to worry about is financial stability. But um, in the run up to '07 the fed was not trying to raise interest rates in order to reduce this or to put uh, policies in place or to advocate policies which would limit uh, uh, this kind of uh, uh, very high loan to value ratio borrowing
0: and congress was leading
1: and congress for that all the reasons to, yeah. right
0: so i suppose though one could say okay mm-hmm. well that's a housing bubble and like
1: biggest a, asset for almost all Americans.
0: But it is the big, it's an unusual <laughs> asset. So it's different from other bubbles, I guess. Right. Different from a commodity, whatever, sure. price spike right. or something. But then I suppose what triggers the real crisis is the financial institutions freezing up, as you said. Right. Now, is that, that's also a policy matter, presumably, or is that inevitable? Is there other, have we, uh, or, hey, I guess, could that have been dealt with? And have we figured out how to deal yeah. with that? So
1: what what has happened since then is the banks have been required to have much more capital. So if you start the game with a lot more capital, even if you have significant losses, it's not such a big problem. And and the the problem that occurred before of. Uh, high loan-to-value ratios, uh, mortgages underwater and all that, uh, there's much less uh, private uh, securitization, much less creation of bonds backed by these high-risk mortgages. So it's now all uh, in the hands of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, meaning the government, meaning you and me, the taxpayers, who will be in trouble if there's another another meltdown. And so Wall Street is much less worried about it this time, I think probably wrongly, because if there is another meltdown in house prices, which probably is less likely now, but if there is, then uh, if Joe walks away from his house, which is underwater because he owes more than the house is worth, uh, and when they go to sell that house, it's a distressed sale prices are driven down the neighbors houses prices are driven down and so even though the mortgages are held uh, on the, uh, the subprime the low quality mortgages may be held by Fannie and Freddie driving down house prices more generally creates a problem for the financial institutions and for the economy as a whole so we're not we're not out of, the woods. out of the woods, right. But I wouldn't say that that today <coughs> is the largest uh, financial risk. I would say it's more generally other kinds of assets that are priced way out of line with uh, historic experience.
0: And that combined with the amount of debt, I guess, public and private, or, or is worrisome, or just the assets themselves? Uh, well, by it's themself? just the assets
1: by themselves. Yeah. So stock market is roughly 70, the, Price earnings ratio, the ratio of share prices to the underlying earnings is about seventy percent higher than it's been on average historically, seventy percent. So that's just way out of line. Uh, ten-year treasury bonds uh, pay a, a yield of less than two and a half percent. You would think in an economy at full employment and with um, moderate but rising inflation, that number should be four, four and a half percent. If that interest rate on those bonds went up to four, four and a half percent, you would see a sharp fall in the value of the bonds. So all of that is, is to my mind, the biggest financial risk that's out there.
0: And this is a risk that somehow just, this is just the nature of modern economies or modern political economy? Or it's the remains? result
1: of 10 years of super low interest rates. If Which, you keep interest rates at uh, almost zero at the short end and uh, uh, 2% at the long end, all these other asset prices are gonna fall in line.
0: And that's a policy choice.
1: And that was a policy choice to, in order to drive down the unemployment
0: rate. So you're, <clears> so- the bad policy choices that led up to 06, 07 or 08, we're making slightly different bad policies, well, related, but not that different. Yes, guess, that's right. No, because we had
1: now. similar things in, you know, 04, 05, 06, very low interest rates driving up house prices.
0: And I suppose the politics of that is people like low interest rates because yeah, they, why wouldn't they? Right. right. Just, I, mean, I mean,
1: on the you other know, hand...
0: Uh, savers, you'd think, might not like them, but they don't seem to have the political cloud Right. borrowers, right? Right, well,
1: savers, savers almost can never win. So in the bad old days, which they thought were the good old days, they got uh, interest rates of, say, 7%. But inflation was 7%, so on a real basis they weren't getting anything. And what's more, unless they had it in an IRA or some fancy thing like that, they had to pay tax on the 7%. So on an after-tax basis, they were getting a negative return. Now they get zero, (laughs) <laughs> but they don't have to pay any tax on the zero. So right. they're actually better off now than they were then.
0: But as a matter of po- overall political economy, we have not, you're not super confident that we've fixed the system as well. No, or not at all, all. Well, not you
1: know? at all. I mean, the economy now is in great shape, looks good, low unemployment, moderate but rising inflation, profits up, uh, business investment up, but very fragile. Because mm. of all of these uh, uh, mispriced assets.
0: So that's interesting. That's different from the conventional, I'd say, account of the economy, which is almost the reverse. <laughs> when we fixed the Wall Street stuff, Dodd-Frank, you know, et cetera. But people, lower-income, working-class people have had no wage growth. Everyone's very familiar by now with, the, uh, with Trump's victory, especially you know this this kind of narrative you might mm. say about the economy. What about that side of it? How worried are you about? sort of people's incomes, jobs, globalization, automation, all that stuff? I mean, that's a big question, but... uh,
1: So there will obviously be some people who will suffer from all of that. Uh, But you have to start with the fact that the economy is essentially at full employment. Four point seven percent is probably unsustainably low unemployment. uh, for college graduates, two and a half percent. Yes, some people have stopped looking, so they're not counted as unemployed. But that's a very small number. So you
0: don't buy this argument that I mean Trump is now joined what has been traditionally a sort of argument <clears throat> on the left. I'd say that you know there are all these people out there who are unemployed and underemployed who aren't getting counted. That you think that's It's a small
1: number, but it's a if you look at people who are less than a high school uh, education, it's a very high number. But that's a, fortunately a very small part of our population. And the the general proposition that uh, real incomes haven't been rising for decades uh, is just a reflection of the way the government creates the statistics.
0: Okay, well that's interesting. So explain that because yeah. that's become such a... talking and As I say, in a way, it was always more of a, I think, a lefty criticism of America type talking point. And Republicans could be counted on to say, no, no, you know, the markets are working. But now, of course, we have an unusual Republican president. So everyone's saying it. You look
1: at the official statistics, and they tell you that over the last 30 years, real GDP per capita, real income per capita is up about one and a half percent. And if you throw in the notion that the top income groups have gotten a disproportionate share of that, then it's easy to say, well, the people in the middle are hardly getting any increase at all in their incomes for the last several decades. So, uh, so what's wrong with that? Basically, the way the, uh, uh, the government creates the measure of real income has two serious problems. One is, what do you do about quality change? And the second is, what do you do about new products? And I think we knew these were problems and that they were difficult, and so maybe they didn't quite get it right. And So I've been studying it in detail, and it's worse than not quite getting it right. It's just plain wrong. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you a little more about this. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the Department of Labor, uh, follows a large number of individual products, and they ask the manufacturer or in the case of services, the producer of the service, they say, did your product change since last year? And if the product changed, they say, well, how much more did it cost to make this year's version than it would have cost to make last year's version? So what's the extra cost from whatever change you've made? And if the manufacturer says, well, it didn't really cost any more. We just came up with a way of making a better product. Then the BLS says, well, then there's no quality change. So that's nutty.
0: So See, the iPhone, is, if it doesn't cost more, is no better than the right. BlackBerry of right. years ago. Right, right.
1: Or know? whatever else it may whatever. be. Uh, if, they, if it didn't cost more, it's not uh, any better. So they just miss And they have a name for this. They call it the resource cost method of uh, quality adjustment. But it's got nothing to do with quality. It's got to do with the cost of making it. So in an economy in which smart companies, smart technologists keep improving products, it just doesn't register. So so I think we're substantially underestimating the growth of real incomes because we're not picking up these quality improvements.
0: That would the same be true, for example, for I don't know, pharmaceuticals? That if if a drug doesn't a cost perfect. anything more today than it did twenty so years that's ago, a great but example. it's much more effective at preventing yeah. me from having a heart attack, right?
1: So that's the perfect example. I like to give that example about statins, the drugs so that keep us that. Okay, keep well, us great. both alive. Yeah. So so when statins came along. Uh, they of course there was some dollar amount of sales they added that to gdp but nothing for the fact that we would pay a lot for the fact that these drugs will reduce our risk of dying or having a heart attack or a a stroke eventually the statins became the largest uh, uh, selling class of uh, pharmaceutical drugs and of course by then they added it to the price index that they use for doing these calculations. So when a statin went off patent and therefore its price fell, they said, aha, there's a real income increase because the cost of buying that drug is now cheaper. But nothing at all for the life-saving, nothing for the hospitalization cost reduction, nothing, nothing, nothing. So that's true of all kinds of new products. They just miss it they don't try even to get the uh, the extra value that's created in that way. So I don't know how big these two things are, but I think they are enormously important and that we're missing them. So when we say per capita income up one and a half percent on average over the last 30 years, well, maybe it's three and a half percent, maybe it's five and a half percent. It could be that much. Often. It could easily be that, because think about it, there's nothing for the actual quality improvement and there's nothing for the value of
0: newly created products, so. So, yeah, yeah, it just seems like in a common sense way, you're living in a bigger house, you have a car, you know, you, right. you have all this technology you didn't have 30, 40 years ago. Right. You have all the problems with health care, so there's going to be a better medical right. care in the sense that right. people are less likely to die from various things early and stuff. Yeah, yeah but that's not really captured.
1: Not captured. Non-capital.
0: Yeah, and does that, does that have much of an effect, do you think, on our actual policies I, or in politics? I, guess it I think
1: it does. I think it does because I think people, when and one of the interesting things, if you do surveys, you look at the surveys, people are asked, well, how is your family doing relative to five years ago? And the overwhelming answer is, okay, we're doing okay. Uh, of course, there are some who are saying we're struggling, but the overwhelming majority, Federal Reserve does this survey every few years people are saying we're doing okay. Then you ask people in these surveys, Gallup does it and others, how do you think the US economy is doing? Oh, terribly, terribly. Yeah. So of course people know how their own household is doing. They don't have a clue how the economy as a whole is doing. All they know about the economy as a whole is what they hear on television or uh, read in the newspapers or hear from politicians. So I think it it very much affects their view of, how the economy is doing and how we're doing as, a, as an economic system. Is capitalism working? Are we benefiting from it? And uh, they know that personally they must be doing all right, but of course they're nervous about their kids. My cho- you know, overwhelmingly people say, my children won't be as well off as I am. The chance of that being true is about zero.
0: Is that right? Yeah, that is a big deal, I think, people who study public opinion think in the last few years, they say for the first time maybe, that you know that number really started to go well, up, if you, the, if the you pessimism about so the future. So if you look
1: at people who came out of the depression, as my parents did, uh, your father did, uh, then of course they had seen this overwhelming improvement, there was no doubt about it. Right. But it slowed down uh, relative to coming out of the depression. But I think there's no doubt, especially if you correct for all these things that we just talked about, There's no doubt that uh, we're going to be seeing uh, higher real incomes. And of course, if you're at the 50th percentile in the income distribution and your kids are in the 30th percentile, well, they won't get the full benefit of whatever this increase is, but it would be very hard cumulatively over a matter of decades for your kids not to be, I don't mean your kids or my kids, kids in general not to do as well as their as their parents.
0: And this despite presumably, or maybe you're what a challenge, this isn't quite right either, the, the greater advantages to education and a greater income disparity and life chance disparity even. and the, I mean, is, is some chunk of the country right to be sort of deeply pessimistic about their futures? And, their children's futures assuming their children let's say are at the same you know i haven't really I haven't
1: studied well at the same educational level because more then i would say yeah more people are having higher education right, so but i would say you know unless we're looking at the, say the bottom 10 percentile of where people are uh, have a much higher probability of being unemployed we're seeing evidence of much more Uh, drug and alcohol abuse and uh, higher mortality rates and so on. But that's a pathological, small part. We should care about it as a nation, but it's a small part of our overall system. It's not the the middle class.
0: And more, it sounds like you're saying, a cultural and social problem perhaps than a pure economic opportunity problem.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, why are people... Dropping out, and not finishing high school. Yeah, that's not right. right. Is it ability? Is it, uh, uh, is, it uh, is it cultural?
0: Yeah, It's not in their interest. So it's not like I mean. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now I am struck by I, in the public discourse today the kind of nostalgia for a certain time it's not clear when exactly it was, when there were all these wonderful working class jobs. Now, you and I are old enough to remember that these working class jobs weren't thought to be so wonderful. Right. At the time, I went to college and read all these books from the preceding 10 and 20 years, sociologists about the, I uh, know me, the alienation of right. you know assembly line life, which was not as false, incidentally. It wasn't right. the greatest thing in the world to you know, move one part to another part right. for eight hours a day. It wasn't right. good for you physically. It wasn't satisfying. Exactly. Uh, when Trump goes around talking about, I'm going to bring coal mining back. It's like, do we want to bring coal mining back? (laughs) I think you die at age 50 of black lung disease. I mean, but I'm a little struck, aren't you, that people are sort of uh, responsive to that message? Well, it
1: was a guaranteed life income. That's what it it really meant. You went to work for an individual company. Uh, The job may not have been fun, but you you had friends on the line, and you... uh, you know, you sat with your lunch pail, and you talked over lunch, and then you went back to work, and you knew the job would be there next week, next year. Uh, and uh, But you know, it's a tiny fraction now of the total workforce, something like 8%, 8% of, of uh, total employment are uh, manufacturing production workers. So that's history, that's that's not a question of, coming back or preventing the loss of, or stopping competition, it's 8%, so it's nothing.
0: So your message to a, I don't know, working class America, or let's say a recent immigrant, just to take away all the history here, who comes and presumably, let's just say, has a working class type job, you know, driving a cab or something like that, driving an Uber, I guess, (laughs) um, would be, yes, if your kid stays through high school, gets a decent education, has good work habits, and that kind of thing, doesn't.
1: Stay out of poverty if you do three things, right? You finish high school, you uh, get married before you have children, right, and, and you uh, uh, and you get a a job before you get married. Right. You do all of that. Uh, I think the evidence is that doesn't mean you're going to be rich, but it does mean you will be out of you'll stay out of poverty.
0: Are you worried about the <clears throat> parent figures of a decline of social mobility, or is that also? Little overdone in your
1: um, opinion. So, uh, my student Raj Chetty, who is a brilliant guy and a creator of some of those statistics, uh, found that, if I can remember correctly, found that uh, absolute social mobility—the probability that if you were in the thirtieth percentile, your child would. Uh, mm-hmm be below the 30th percentile. I think his findings were that that wasn't happening.
0: Uh, The lack of mobility wasn't.
1: The lack of mobility was not happening. People were as mobile as they used to be. And that hardly got any press attention. So he's now been working on, uh, forget what he calls it, dynamic mobility or something like that. And that is (coughs) uh, whether taking into account growth, your children will be Uh, better off than you were at the same stage in your life. And that depends critically on what the underlying growth rate is. So if you take the official numbers, the growth rate is 1.5%, then there's a good chance that if your child falls from, if you're in the 50th percentile and your child falls from the 50th percentile to the 30th percentile and there's hardly any growth, they will be worse off. But that's only because of this mismeasurement of the underlying trend. So if the trend is three or four percent higher, then it's very unlikely that the next generation will be worse off.
0: So basically, the sort of old cliche that a rising tide lifts—not all boats, most boats. Right. And the best thing you can probably do is provide the rising tide, and not try to, you know, micromanage mm-hmm. everyone's boats. If I can torture <laughs> this metaphor. You sort of think there's a lot yeah, of truth to that. that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's it's been really too quickly. Right. I mean, I'm struck how many day, people these days sort of just say, yeah, "Well, we used to think a rising tide raises, you know, lifts all boats, but now we know so much better right. about the losers from globalization, etc." You hear this right. so much in Washington. Right. You know,
1: small numbers.
0: But you think small numbers, and so the base, your advice to a policymaker, I mean, leaving aside the politics uh, for a right. minute, would still be get growth. Get
1: the um, economy to grow.
0: And globalization. Um, just to take touch on that for a minute, globalization and technology. These two. Villains you would also make the case that they've been good. right? They basically
1: have been good Uh, I don't think anybody denies. Well, of course you can say people lost jobs because of Technology, but a politician can't rant against technology. There's no no evil Something to stop. Uh, I guess the notion of taxing robots is the closest we've had uh, in that direction of silliness Uh, but um, So I would say Economists have said historically, uh, trade is good. And what they meant is that in the aggregate, Americans are better off because of trade. And we never made much of a, of a thing of the fact that some people will be worse off. But if pressed, you would say, as I would say in teaching, uh, of course, some people will be worse off. But the others who are better off are better off by enough that they could compensate the losers and everybody would be better off. But of course we don't have programs to compensate the losers. And we
0: have, we have have trade adjustment
1: uh, legislation. But my judgment about that is if somebody loses their job because some new technology comes along, are we gonna compensate them? You can't do that. So then why should we compensate their brother who lost a job because some product came into the country from outside? So I think it's impossible to do that compensation. And so what you have to hope is that the, the rising tide, as you said, rises fast enough that the guy who loses his first job finds another job which is as good.
0: And I do think it requires the politicians a little more of a let's say, a tough love message with a little emphasis on the toughness, which people seem very incapable of doing these days, which I do think Americans traditionally had a certain understanding right. of. Life's tough. It could be unfair. I mean, it sounds terrible to say it if you're sitting in a comfortable chair, here, but, I mean, and people may have, have to move.
1: Empathy. But, empathy. That's but, what politicians have But it have really to hurts
0: people if the empathy, don't mm-hmm. you think, if the empathy leads to telling people, no, stay where you are, the job will come back. Yeah. To don't encourage yeah, no, your kid to right, leave yeah. Scranton, Pennsylvania, yeah. or not to pick on Scranton, Pennsylvania, but whatever. Right. They can't you know, Ohio someplace. It's a decline yeah. of you know, Detroit. Yeah. And go somewhere where there are more jobs. You're not doing the kid a favor, or the even the parents a favor, right? To say, you know, stay there and you know, well, increase the trade adjustment uh, <laughs> dole or right. you know, a stipend or. I think that's right. I mean, that really is. I think that's a political <laughs> problem, though, that it's gotten harder somehow to. People think government can fix everything. and In the old days, there was a certain, this was sort of a byproduct, I think, of a kind of limited government attitude, which was, you know, you so, sort of just have to sort of accept it and move on kind so of thing. So we have an
1: administration which is talking or has talked tough about trade, and if they are seen as having tried, then maybe we finish doing that yeah. talk, tough talk about trade.
0: Though I think, don't you think that... Um, I'm struck on the trade issue in particular the total failure of political leaders in both parties to defend trade which has really been good for the country and really good for the world. I mean for Asia you yes, know sure I mean, it's a great moral achievement to take <laughs> Hundreds of millions of people absolutely. out of poverty. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and not that we did it; they did it, but we helped by providing this well, international order. Well, helping them get
1: into the WTO is yeah. really what turned China Chinese manufacturing around.
0: And India became a more capitalist country. Yes. changed them around. Yep. And we take no, but no one thinks that was a good. Th- and people talk talk about it as if it was entirely a problem, not a not an achievement. Well, I and
1: think some of us talk about those two as, as no, we good tried things to, <laughs> but I'm saying politically, them, it's right. sort of. I mean, well, you right. know, and.
0: Uh, watching Hillary Clinton, who can't possibly believe that it was a bad thing to have a Asia trade agreement, right. both, both geopolitically and right. economically, right. sort of have to walk away from it. I think yeah. it's, it makes you wonder, worry whether you could have now yes, generations why? of politicians yeah. who just think it's you can get get away with being anti-trade and not pay some price for it. But
1: and why did Obama not? I mean, he introduced the uh, Asia trade agreement, but then he never really pushed no. for it until the last few weeks of his His own party super- was against it. I mean,
0: yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. That, I think that, that strikes me as a case where you can say, well, it was kind of a lazy consensus to be <laughs> pro-trade and all that, but it was probably a healthy consensus yes, for the country. Yes, So How much do you worry about that? I mean, just how important, as, as an actual matter of economic policy, you know, more of Fear rather than less. So forgetting
1: the benefits to the other countries, just thinking about the U.S., the U.S. is such a large economy that a lot of the benefits of trade are second order. So if you're Belgium, then it's a big deal that you have competition and that you import cars rather than trying to make it for your little market and so on. But for the U.S., we don't need uh, foreign competition to. To um, um, make our domestic producers more efficient. Now, obviously, the Japanese and the Korean car makers did do that, but as long as we have an an open system with multiple car manufacturers and we enforce uh, anti monopoly provisions, then we don't need trade to do that. So, imports are 15% of GDP, and exports are about 12% 12% of GDP. So if you say, well, what if we didn't do that? What if we just kept it all here? Uh, how much better or use of those resources are we getting by making stuff for the other guys and bringing stuff in? Double? So maybe it's double. I have no idea. Right. Let's say it's double. So that means that if we took away trade, our GDP would be 15% lower roughly. It's not that the exports would be 15% lower, but the value of the products that we would make in the United States with those same resources, instead of making stuff that the rest of the world wants to buy and getting cheaper goods from the rest of the world. Well, that's not a big deal. I mean in the in the grand scheme of
0: things since to end trade I mean we're not going to do it but yeah. I'm just saying so, I mean, a you a asked marginal the hypothetical change, no, but a question but marginal change in reduction of but even if you completely dramatic,
1: eliminated right? it and you said where would the economy be now if we had eliminated it 30 years ago we would be 15% 15% poorer. Uh, I'd be thrown out of the economics profession for saying this, but I do say it in class, or I did say it in class when I taught the introductory course, so we shouldn't overstate it. Obviously, it's a plus, uh, and it's certainly a plus for these other countries, but it's, uh, and it would be a plus for any small country that needs trade to enforce competition. So for us, it's important, but it's not a big, big deal.
0: But I suppose so I suppose the trade argument has to be made a little more geopolitically and strategically also. Yes, that well really that is certainly good true. for the world yes, to have this, right, you know.
1: Right.
0: Uh, and technology, the other. So globalization is one sort of villain. Um, I mean, it's not going to go away anyway. But yeah, how, how? I mean, there are people who are serious people who really think we've gotten very used to sort of not worrying too much about technology. Uh, new jobs come along to replace the old ones. Maybe. We're at a different inflection point with self-driving cars, artificial intelligence, it's sort of a big leap, you know? Yeah,
1: hard to know. We haven't been there, so we don't know. But certainly in the past, decades ago, we said automation is coming to factories, people in the factories are no longer gonna have jobs, and they, what? What's true is they were right. So the factory jobs, they said, production workers, 8%, so we've lost those. Go back a generation and say the same thing about agriculture. How, where, you know, what's going to happen to all these farmers? Well, somehow or other, they and their children found other jobs. So uh, so, I have a feeling that the people who are driving uh, Uber cars or taxis will find something else. What happened to the elevator operators? What happened to the switchboard operators? What happened to, now I see McDonald's is going to have a, uh, machines that will um, take your order and package it and do all that. But the world keeps going on and uh, f- finding new uh, occupational opportunities.
0: I flew up here last night and, you know, you just forget how many people used to work at airline counters, right? right? You right. know, processing by hand, all right. this thing that we you, you do know, it yourself. one person there to help out, you know, <laughs> but you do it yourself and right. presumably it's a huge net yeah. increase in efficiency and yeah. presumably those people are getting other jobs that, uh, one hopes
1: 2.5% unemployment rate among college graduates. So they and must be finding something else.
0: Right. Now that is really remarkable. So you're not pessimistic. Mean, you're reasonably optimistic about the core, about that. I mean, I think you have criticism of the policy world. The and I'm also fragile.
1: nervous about the fragility of the financial sector with right. overpriced assets.
0: But on the kind of stuff that's been getting so much attention, Right. I'm you actually, optimistic. you are, and you remain kind of convinced that the core teachings of the economics profession that's, you know, yeah, markets look, work and, yeah, you know. and I look at Europe
1: where, I mean, take Italy, wonderful country, wonderful country. They've had no growth at all uh, since they joined uh, uh, the Eurozone, none, zero, that's terrible. Now, that may be m- mismeasured also. Right. And so maybe they're getting some but by the standard in which other countries are getting two percent, they're getting nothing, and and why? Because they have terrible uh, rules about protecting jobs, uh, protecting product markets, uh, and so it's this unwillingness to to bring competition into these industries that makes it very hard for them to get growth.
0: And you were. Critic of the euro early on, yes. uh, and I think you've been pretty well vindicated on that. No, <laughs> I mean, isn't that one of the reasons Italy really doesn't have growth? Incidentally, well, to, uh, yes, I they mean they can't export because the.
1: Well, <laughs> they would be able to export more if they had a more competitive currency, and uh, and, uh, um, but if you if you look at Germany, Germany is doing reasonably well. Yeah, it has, Germany and Europe as a whole, the Eurozone as a whole, has an unemployment rate which is about twice ours. So if we are 4.7, they're close to 10. And uh, But Germany is around 6. Yeah. So they have figured out how to improve their education system, how to uh, improve all kinds of structural policies to allow them to compete within the Eurozone and globally. And um, uh, others have not done it because of, of just entrenched uh, uh, unwillingness to take on the unions which are much, much more important in a country like Italy than they are here.
0: How, how worried are you about Europe as a whole going forward? I mean, do you think it sort of more of the same or could it, is there sort of a tipping point problem where they- I
1: Well, I think politically, I think the tipping point is political. I think uh, the, uh, the growth rate, you know, again, barring all these measurement problems, uh, growth rate may be low, and in some countries very low, and the unemployment rates, that's where part of the problem is. You look at the unemployment rates in in Italy or Spain among young people, 25 percent, 30 percent. It's hard to know how much of that is real and how much is underground economy. But what is clearly real is the political uncertainty in those countries, the probability that some group will come to power that says we've had enough of the Euro and the Eurozone, let's get out, and then the whole thing begins to collapse.
0: So despite having been a critic of the Euro, you're not a big fan of uh, people exiting from it? or? You no,
1: keep- I, I am not one way or the other on that. I think, uh, you know, I think the problem is it was a mistake in some sense to create the Euro. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it made it more likely that they would have higher unemployment rates. Uh, and on the other hand, taking it apart is not an easy thing. On the other hand, we're seeing, well, of course, Britain was never in the Euro. Oh, right, they were so. in the EU. So they wisely stayed out.
0: Yeah. And had pretty good growth, actually, yes, over those right, years. Yes, right, uh, and even now. are doing so yep. turned out not to be that important <laughs> to be in the euro yep. even, right? So, right. Uh, yeah. So it seems to me, if you step back from this, I'm, I'm, you actually are, I mean, I'm not very sympathetic to it personally, but <laughs> in a way opposite of this convent, what has become the conventional wisdom, which I would say is, but correct me if I'm wrong about this, I think you would say the conventional wisdom is too complacent about the policy errors that have been made, financial... Risk bubbles mm-hmm. and so forth, um, and but too worried in a way, or too alarmist about the technology, globalization. You know, no one's ever going right. to kids I are never going right. to live as well. Low in. growth. Uh, right.
1: Yes, I would say that's right.
0: And I think that's actually a problem because um, a, it's maybe it's wrong just analytically, but b, I think it leads to a bad, a bad kind of politics, which is like neither fixes what can be fixed. But is also sort of semi-hysterical about things that it shouldn't be hysterical about, and you you end up, if I can put it in a shorthand, with Trump on the one hand and Sanders on the other. You know, you right. end up with sort of you don't end up with a healthy debate of okay, well, let's how do we increase? So well, but the, I I mean, but the well, just,
1: except having said all that, I don't know. Didn't pay enough attention to Sanders' campaign to know what he was actually proposing yeah. to do, right. but, but Trump is clearly, and uh, uh, Congressional Republicans are clearly proposing policies that will increase the growth rate.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that. I yeah. guess I want to come back. You said that was how important. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you do think government can really make a difference there. We're not just yeah. Well, it can make a difference for the technology. better or for the worse,
1: yeah. and if you have a, uh, a corporate tax rate of 35%, which is the highest in the industrial world, that doesn't help. So bringing down the corporate rate is a big deal. If you have a tax system that tells subsidiaries of American companies uh, operating abroad that when they earn their profits, they shouldn't bring them home because if they bring them home, they'll get whacked with another heavy tax. Uh, Well that, again, contributes to investment in the rest of the world contributes to rising productivity, stronger GDP growth, and all that, so there's more than $2 trillion of U.S. subsidiaries' assets outside the U.S. because of our tax system. So fixing those two things, bringing down the corporate rate and, um, and uh, changing to a tax system that encourages bringing back uh, funds or doesn't discourage bringing back, I think those are key parts of uh, what was, what is the House Republican plan. We don't know exactly where the administration's going to come out, uh, but I suspect it's not going to be far from that.
0: And you think that would make a real difference? I
1: think that would make a real difference, right. I think there are other things in the um, uh, Republican tax plan and uh, potentially in the administration's tax plan that... uh, uh, I think have a, lo- a lower chance of getting through the political process, but I think those two things—bringing down the top rate and changing the tax treatment of foreign profits brought back to the U.S.—I think those would make a big difference.
0: And other things that are <clears throat> arguably doable, even if they're tough politically. Regulatory. Yeah. regulatory. Now so How that's big a burden is that do you think really? It's very
1: hard to know. I mean, you know, as an economist I can talk about the taxes and I've got a measure of them and what it does to the cost of capital and all that. On regulation though, you do hear from every kind of business how, what a burden it is and how they spend their time and staff and all that uh, trying to figure out what the regulations are because they don't want to get caught in violation and uh, figuring out how to cope with these regulations. And so cutting back on some of the regulations that have been put in place, I think will undoubtedly be a plus in terms of economic growth, and that we won't uh, uh, we won't be doing damage if we do that in a smart way. Let me just put it that way. So you don't throw away Dodd-Frank, but you make changes in Dodd-Frank that, uh, Uh, remove some of the regulatory burdens on the financial sector. Uh, You make changes in the Clean Air Act uh, that uh, don't cause terrible pollution of our environment, uh, but again, remove lots of the detailed controls that we now have in place.
0: If you were back as chairman of the See uh, how much would you be telling the president to worry about the debt? I mean, twenty trillion dollars seems lot. like a lot. <laughs> a lot,
1: yeah, a lot. I mean, that was part of my theme then. It was part of Mr. Reagan's theme before he came to the White House, uh, and and in the end, uh, <clears throat> by the time he left at the end of the eight years, the the cost of of servicing the debt, the uh, uh, intra- the deficit. No, not the cost of servicing the debt. The deficit excluding the cost of servicing the debt. So the deficit, so-called primary deficit that excludes the interest rates, was back to where it was when he came in. People don't recognize
0: that. So they managed to do a big defense build-up. Big
1: defense build-up.
0: Not cut entitlements cut, much cut, at all. Not
1: cut entitlements Reduce the much. rate of
0: growth, I guess, in Social Security. But, but, so, yeah.
1: Uh, but that didn't really take effect during his uh, eight years. So it was, an ama- I think the ability of the uh, uh, Reagan administration to change the social security rules gradually over time has paid off in terms of the size of the deficit now, although as life expectancy has continued to increase, you're running harder to just stand still. So we need to go back to that subject.
0: Yeah, talk, I'm just, I haven't really planned to think about, talk about that, but what about the, you were there, right? You, I think you were chairman of the council yeah. in the Reagan-Tippo-Deal yes, negotiations, right. and you were very much involved. Uh,
1: yes, and, that, that happened in 83. Seems
0: like people cite that as one of the last case studies of an actual bipartisan deal that, uh, you know. Well, the
1: 86 Tax Act right. was, a, that came a little later, but we've been working on that, those issues, and uh, that was also done with uh, the Democrats controlling the House. Right. And it was, so it's pretty amazing.
0: Pretty and amazing. lessons from that, having had a real ringside seat, and yeah. not just a seat, so but being br- a participant. So I that mean,
1: brought down the top rate. The 80, 86 Tax Reform Act brought, it was just about personal taxes, unlike what's being d- debated now, which is mostly about corporate taxes. Uh, and that brought down, the 86 Act, brought down the top rate from um, 50% to 28%. That's pretty amazing when you think about that. It meant that you got to keep twice as much of your uh, after-tax income uh, than you did before. So uh, it didn't last. And of course there was a a give up uh, in order to get it. There was a base broadening, taxing more things, getting rid of some of the artificial accounting gimmicks so that on an income class by income class, income bracket by income bracket, there was no reduction in taxes, but there was a reduction in the marginal tax rates, the tax rates on incremental income, and that changed incentives. And so that was a very good thing to do. Uh, So we got it down to 28%, and then George uh, H.W. Bush was persuaded that in order to get a spending cut deal, he should allow the 28 to go to 31. Politically a terrible mistake because he had run on the right. read my lips, no new taxes, and he pushed the tax rate up by this little bit. Then when Clinton came in, he said, well, we've got a budget deficit, it's a serious problem. We'll take that 31 up to 36, an extra 5%. But uh, for high-income individuals, we'll put a 10% <coughs> extra tax on it. So the 36 became 396 And that's where we are, except that Obama, as part of the Obamacare, pushed it up to 44 So what's the lesson? That you can get a um, temporary reduction by giving up s- certain structural features. So that's going to make it hard to sell going forward
0: a lesson for you for uh, the sort of political side, the leadership side, having, se- you know, seen you've been involved in it yourself. I mean, anything's a young person going to Washington should take from those two episodes, 83 or 86, especially 83 <coughs> where you were, you were right there. Well, I mean.
1: 83 was um, a great example of doing something that needed to be done, but that would phase in very, very slowly. Until a couple of years ago, it hadn't fully phased in. So phasing in very slowly by gradually increasing uh, the age at which uh, people got full benefits. So that was a very good thing to do, and we should go back and do it again, because since 83, life expectancy for somebody in their mid-60s has gone up by another three years. So they pushed it up from 65 to 67, and um, now that uh, has been more than undone by the improvements in health care and in healthy living
0: and reagan's performance there i mean lessons for future. Oh, well, he
1: was just great at doing that i mean he was just uh, the fact that he was able to negotiate that with tip o'neill i remember once um, must have been around a budget time and O'Neill and a few of the Democratic leadership came to the Oval Office, and since the issue was, uh, was a tax and economic issue, I was there. And, and O'Neill said, oh, this is terrible, Mr. President. We can't, you know, we can't live with any of that, and so on. And then they, they went away. And then uh, Jim Baker, who was, uh, a, I think he must have been uh, Chief of Staff Chief at staff. the time, yeah. said, they're ready to deal. <laughs> <that right>? yeah. <laughs> so, you know, as a, a neophyte, a guy who'd been on the job for a matter of months, seemed to me this was an explosive, no, no, we're not doing anything, but a um, uh, savvy politician like Jim could uh, read in the, whether it was the body language or the words, that, uh, yes, he had to make those noises, even though it was private, even though it was you know, just in the Oval Office, he had to make those noises, but then they could sit down and start dealing.
0: How about you mentioned passing mm-hmm. that? Of course, the tax tax rates, marginal rates, have uh, impact on incentives. And that was not always part of. I mean, the main mainstream, mainstream economic right. thinking. I mean, that's a pretty mm-hmm. uh, big change, right? And
1: uh, right. Uh, I I think um, it's hard to believe anybody would I know, dispute that. When you said now, it, it seems right. so commonsensical, right. but.
0: Right. Uh, people that, well, That's with. right,
1: no, no, people do what they do. They get up in the morning and they go to work and they work right. hard and it's the American way and taxes don't move them one way or the other.
0: And was that a case where actual you know, intellectual work led to policy a, yeah, changes or was it more of, being mugged by reality? And well, I think
1: it was both. I think there was a lot of empirical work which showed the sensitivity and, and then subsequent to the 86 Act That was such a wonderful experiment, because you had this big move, and the uh, IRS produces uh, anonymized uh, tax return data that researchers like myself can study and say, well what happened? Uh, You could follow the same individuals before and after the 86 uh, change, and you can see what a substantial increase in their taxable income occurred. Not just that they worked harder, but that they took more of their compensation in cash And they took more of their compensation in taxable form rather than fringe benefits and they took fewer deductions for all all of the wonderful deductible things. So uh, Yes, I think we learned a lot Uh, We had learned a certain amount before when I first started teaching uh, public finance uh, the uh, the, the The technical literature and economics sort of downplayed the impact of this, but then over time, particularly in the financial area, how people changed capital gains, uh, all of that began to change, and so the government now has what they call dynamic scoring in which they take into account behavior that was very, very controversial
0: yeah, it seems the problem is less not knowing things today and more not having the political will um, or courage to do certain well, things. Well,
1: we'll see right? what happens in the tax oh, that will be
0: interesting. I think that'll be interesting. But you mentioned, I mean, uh, President Reagan, and I guess so you got there in 82, I 82, guess. 82, yeah. But Paul Volcker, so we're, we already were <clears throat> coming out a little bit of the recession, or were we still in the 81, 82? We were still very recession? much
1: in the recession in, in the summer of 82 and I And do arrived. you agree
0: that, I've always thought, Reagan gets so much credit, as he said, for <clears throat> obviously the Cold War and for the tax cuts, and but I think sticking, hanging tough in 81, 82 with the Fed chairman, Paul Volcker, as we really went through the ringer in a pretty tough recession.
1: So Volcker had been appointed by Carter. He went to Carter at one point and said, we're looking at 10%, 12% inflation. We've got to do something about it. It could cause a recession. Carter said, go for it. And Volcker did. And it caused a recession, and that was the end of uh, Carter's presidency. He uh, he he lost the election, and uh, and Reagan, when he came in, said, you know, this recession isn't my fault. It's their fault. It was the last guys, and they allowed this economy to get way off track to have this high inflation. And so I back Mr. Volker in doing this. Um, that did it, and we had enormously high inflation, but as the, and enormously high interest rates, but if you, they did daily tracking polls. And so you could see as the inflation numbers came down, the president's popularity went up.
0: So he was able to stand by Volker despite right. a rough right. year, and right. who succeeds right. and It wasn't it. his
1: problem, he inherited it. And Volker was doing the right thing, and he never criticized volcker yeah that's that 's Don Regan, the Treasury secretary at the time, almost never passed up an opportunity to criticize the Fed because one of his senior officials was always picking on the barrel sprinkle was always picking on the uh, on the Fed and don would uh, who didn 't know very much about economics or financial markets, even though he 'd been the head of Merrill Lynch. Uh, that uh, uh they uh, but the president never did
0: and do you think i mean <coughs> that seems like a contrast with the last bunch of years you were saying earlier that the <coughs> fed both under bush and under obama kept rates low i suppose partly right. because they genuinely were worried at times about a crash i mean right. maybe after 09 after 08 but also <coughs> just because it's politically easier i guess not to be not to be the tough guy right
1: yeah
0: but Folker, that's an impressive is that story like do people appreciate that enough? Somehow, it seems to be.
1: Well, they
0: uh, maybe do. Maybe in the economics <laughs> world, they so do. They maybe do not they in don't. the broader world. They
1: do and they don't. So, when the Fed celebrated its hundredth anniversary a little while ago, uh, Paul Volcker came to Cambridge to a m- summer meeting of the National Bureau of Economic Research, it brings together a few hundred people.
0: Which you ran for many, many which years. I ran
1: for thirty years. But uh, I got to interview Paul on that occasion when he came up. And one of the things I said to him was, well, it must have been difficult to persuade your colleagues on the open market committee to raise interest rates to these enormously high levels. Well, we didn't raise interest rates. The market raised interest rates. So all we did was to change some of the reserve requirement rules. So the Fed doesn't want its fingerprints on tough policies. Of course he did it. Everybody knew it at the time. He he led uh, a, a uh, an intellectual change. It wasn't just uh, changing interest rates. It was persuading them that that's what was needed to reverse the inflation. Because you know until then, uh, the the typical rhetoric was about so-called cost-push inflation. It's it's unions. It's import prices. It's who knows what but it's it's not our fault at the Fed. And so, and and the Fed had also made the mistake until Volcker got there of not making a distinction between actual interest rates and real interest rates. In other words, not adjusting for inflation. So as in, as inflation picked up, they raised interest rates a little bit, and they said, you see, we're tightening. But if you looked at inflation at the same time, you'd say that those interest rates in real terms, meaning the interest rate minus the inflation rate, were actually going down. So the Fed was just not doing what it needed to do. And and there were a few academics, a few uh, people at the Fed who were explaining all that, and then finally, when things were just running off uh, off the rails with double-digit inflation, Paul said, gotta do this.
0: Yeah, it's impressive. You know, it is. Deserves more attention yes, than it right. gets. No, no,
1: no, he certainly did.
0: Let me ask you, we'll, we'll let you go here in a minute, but um, a few minutes, but uh, it's always interesting to ask people who've uh, achieved high uh, office in government and sort of how they... Got there, just I think it's young people always look up and they think (laughs) there's some smooth path up to being chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers or whatever. I'm just curious, how did you happen to become? President Reagan picked up the phone one day and said, Hey, you're teaching up there at Harvard. Why don't you come to Washington for a year or two?
1: Not quite. Uh, I had uh, been doing policy related research, I'd been uh, writing papers about taxes. Uh, i had uh, been testifying occasionally to Congress about these issues, uh, but I was not at all involved in uh, with Reagan when um, George.
0: Had you been in government before? I can't. No, I'd remember. never been in government. So you really had, oh, that's nothing unusual, right? Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Good, pure academic. So when George H. W. Bush started to think about running for president. One of my... um, So
0: this is 1978, 79. Something like that, yeah. yeah. So
1: one of my uh, uh, close friends in uh, Congress called up and said, you know, there's this smart guy who we know from the Ways and Means Committee who's now gone off to Texas, but he's thinking about running, and we're going to have a meeting in uh, Kennebunkport. It's close to you. Do you want to come up and join the discussion? never done anything like that? That seemed like a good thing to do. So I went up and I met uh, George, H. W., and um, and he ran. And I uh, had lots of conversations with him. And then at some point, he lost uh, the nomination to Reagan. And so he uh, dropped. So I dropped out of that whole thing and went back to doing what I do. And then one day, um, so they appoint. So Reagan won, and a man named Murray Wiedenbaum was appo- who'd been in the treasury, was appointed as CEA chair. And then um, Murray, after two years, decided he'd had enough. And uh, the next thing I knew, I got a call, not from the president, but from the Wall Street Journal, saying, <laughs> saying, you're on the short list for this CEA thing. What do you think? And I said, well, that comes as a surprise to me. Uh, who else is on the short list? And the guy I talked to said, "Well, I think you're the only one on the shore." Yeah. <laughs> so the next thing I knew, I did get a call uh, to come down
0: and um, and
1: meet the president.
0: That's unusual. That would be your first job in government. <laughs> and what surprised I'm just. To, I'd been, what surprised I'd, you? What I mean, What, what, was, what, what I would, I would you tell did. someone who's not been in government if they were about to go to Washington for the first time?
1: Well, I when I a uh, few years earlier, uh, when Gerald Ford was president. Uh, i um I got a call from his uh, uh chief of staff saying uh, they would like me to come and be a member of the council, not chairman but be a member and i uh, I think I didn't think about it very long I was hard at work doing stuff that I thought was important and that I wanted to get done and uh, so I said well I'm very flattered but Thanks, but no thanks. And the chief of staff said, "Well, you'll regret this," and that (laughs) was the end of that conversation. So no, I'd had no no experience, and that's unusual. I think most people uh, who have well, I'm not so sure about that. If you think about um, some of the recent CEA chairs, I think
0: maybe not. Yeah, a lot of them uh, seem to have spent one year, maybe though. You know, on on staff, staff right? Yeah. So Greg uh, was
1: on the staff. As a very junior person, when I was chairman, Greg Mankiw, and uh, then went back as as uh, chairman, Uh, I can't remember whether Glenn Hubbard had been there or not. So, so I don't have any great advice about how
0: to you know stick to your your stick to your surprises when you when you got there. When I got
1: there, well, I think one of the things that surprised me was what a small stage army it was. You saw the same twelve people (laughs) all the time, and. uh, and how, and, in a sense, how, how apolitical it was. I mean, uh. the, the discussions <coughs> were about substance. The discussions were about substance. And that's not to say that they happened in a political vacuum, but that they were not, well, how many votes? Who's this? Who's going to do that? It was, well, what is it we're trying to achieve here? And then can we sell it? Well, that's good. Yeah.
0: That's yeah. encouraging. Right. Okay. Well, maybe yeah. We should end on that, in, on that encouraging. But generally, just final thing, I mean, so it seems to me you're, I don't know, you're a combination of worried about the policies and sort of <clears throat> encouraged about the underlying uh, capabilities of the country. Is that a fair way to say it? Uh,
1: I'm, I'm worried about the financial market fragility, about the mispriced assets. Uh, and and uh, people in the financial sector uh, are incented to go along rather than to bet against because if the market goes up another 2% and they bet against it, they lost 2% and their competition gained 2% then they're in trouble, so they don't want to do that. And that was true, that was true back in 06 and 07 when I would talk to people in the financial sector and say, you know, aren't you worried? Don't things look overpriced? And they'd say, yes. And I said, why, why don't you bet against it? Reduce your investments, uh, short the, this or that. And they'd say, you don't understand. If I do that, the money leaves and goes across the street. So they're incented to keep taking risks. Uh, it's not their money it's not their money. They're managing, you know, your money, my money, uh the insurance company's money and so on. And if it doesn't work out, well, they're experienced professionals. They may even lose their job, but they'll find another job.
0: And it sounds like that problem is
1: <clears throat> Doesn't a, go away.
0: A Fed problem, though, in some respects.
1: Well, the Fed could I pursue mean, policies. Right.
0: Being low is sort of a was a, right, a was key precondition, you might say, for this absolutely.
1: problem. Right? And you know, if we're all lucky, it'll all go away quietly. They will gradually raise rates, <clears throat> but of course, the they is a totally new Fed, so we're going to have a new chairman, a new vice chairman, a new two vice chairmen, and a whole new cast of of governors. Within, uh, within 12 months.
0: Yeah, it's funny, all the talk in Washington mm-hmm. about the tax bill, the health care bill, this, that, other personalities, this is something that's not talked about right. much. Right, and it's itself. overwhelming.
1: You know, If there's a financial problem, the question is, how does this inexperienced new team, how are they gonna handle it? And, and what kind of folks uh, is the uh, president gonna choose for those things? So that's gonna be very
0: interesting to watch. He calls you up and gets your <laughs> gets your advice, but that's a good note to end on. Something that people haven't thought enough uh, enough about, probably. Marty, thanks so much for taking the time. Good to do being this. with you. It's fun it's having, having this conversation. I enjoyed it too. And thanks for joining us on Conversations.